Please join me in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, I am thankful for the scriptures. In them we can see you. I pray for each one of us this morning that we would catch a glimpse, just even a glimpse of how holy and good you are, that it might transform us. And Lord, I pray as the preacher that you would help me. I ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you this morning. Um, as you know, I was on the men's retreat last weekend, and um, it was great. It was, we, the Lord gave us good weather, and um, it's always interesting to worship Him out in wilderness. And uh, one of the things I love about it is sitting around the campfire. You know, fires are incredible, and that, they call it Mother Nature's TV, just to stare at the, the red coals. Um, the first night, we couldn't have a fire because it rained, and, or it hadn't rained, and we sat around a circle, and it was a little bit weird, like, without the fire. So we had a solution to that. But fire is incredibly comfortable and charming even and, and heartwarming when it's under our control. Or as a fireman corrected me on the way in here, when it's under containment. You don't really control a fire. When it's under containment, um, it's, it's nice. Uh, my brother, though, came on the retreat, and he's from California, and he reminded me that the hills behind his house often get wildfires. And you know, we see it on the news, and he said he's been evacuated from his home, and he's even seen a firefighter standing in full gear in his neighbor's backyard with water trying to fight a fire to save their house. It had come that close to him. And I've seen the hills all singed um, behind his house. It's quite um, actually frightening. So uncontained fires are scary, as are big fires. When fires are particularly large, it can be terrifying. When I was a youth pastor in Charleston, there was a local Episcopal church there uh, that did a, a 12th night event during Christmas. When they came to the 12th night of Christmas, they encouraged all the people to bring their Christmas trees. We've done something similar on a way lower scale here, and they would burn the Christmas trees. But it was such a community event, they actually had a fire truck there and several firefighters in full gear. And it's incredible. By the time you have 50 Christmas trees on fire, it was, it was topping the tree line in the, in the surrounding pine trees. It was huge. And if you were one of the latecomers, you didn't have the luxury of throwing your tree on that fire. You couldn't get near it. You had to give it to the firefighter with a full mask on. They would go in and throw your tree in and then back up. Literally, it was so hot that your flesh would be singed if it was exposed. I mean, that's a terrifying fire. Um, fires that are not contained or controlled and fires that are large are terrifying to us. And here's the connection this morning. God regularly in Scripture, manifests his presence as a fire, a mighty fire, a big one, one that we do not contain or control. And although we know that God is holy and powerful, we are quick to forget that. At least I find that in my life, but I see it in others as well. When we need help or divine guidance, we'll pray, um, but we often neglect what we already have heard from him because he's spoken it to us. We, we've got it. And we neglect that so easily. So it's good to ask the question, how sensitive am I to God's real holiness? Or to turn that into a negative way of stating it, um, how fire-resistant am I? Right? In the bad sense of fire-resistant. And why? Now, our preaching text today is from Deuteronomy. As B.E. mentioned in the uh, call to worship, we're doing this sermon series looking at images of the Messiah, places in the Old Testament that point ahead to him and are fulfilled in him. And today, the text is Deuteronomy 18. And, it, and in the text, it recalls the people's appropriate fear of God, of his holy presence at 
Here it's called Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, where God gave the law. It has the, it's, a, it's a mountain that has two different names, so you'll find it different ways in the scriptures. But in our text today from Deuteronomy 18, he says to Moses, you, Israelites, were correct to be afraid of that fire. You were correct to stand away from it and to ask that an interceder go into it. And so Moses here, it says, it says this, Moses is speaking here. He says, as you desired of the Lord your God at Mount Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, to Moses, they are right in what they have spoken. They are right about that. God said that they were correct to have feared him and to ask for a a spokesman, an intercessor, someone to go, a, a mediator for them. And this was God referring to specifically the Exodus chapter 19. And I think it's helpful to hear it again. Let me, I just want to read this to you and, and try to picture it a little bit. God told Moses, have the people consecrate themselves. And they did certain things. They fasted. They abstained from certain things. They washed all their clothes. They got ready to meet with God. They had three days to prepare. So there's kind of a ramp up to this. Okay? And then it says, this is Exodus 19, 16 to 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Just try to imagine the experience. Even when I say those words, it doesn't feel the same. It's just, when you read it in black and white in the scriptures, it doesn't quite, I mean, maybe close your eyes for these next verses. Try to picture this. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Picture a mountain shaking. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And that's the end of that passage. Whoa, that is a scary experience. That is, that's frightening. It would be life-changing, right? I mean, to, be, to see that, to hear, what did the tramp, trumpet sound like? I imagine it was probably like a trumpet's call to arms, like the big Jewish shofar or some horn being blown that would terrify an enemy. God was coming in this might. If you had experienced that, you'd remember it. I can still remember standing at that Episcopal church and feeling the heat and watching the firefighter throw that Christmas tree in and like it was singeing my goatee. It was that hot. But the interesting thing is they, the Israelites trembled for fear when they saw God in the fire, but this raises a huge pastoral problem that I see in the church. I see it in my own life. Our reverence for God dwindles as quickly as the fire goes down. This is a common problem. As soon as the powerful experience ends, we seem to forget and just move on with life as usual. Have you experienced God in any significant way in your life? Has he ever come in power? Has he ever given you a a word through the scriptures or through three different ways or a sign? Have you ever um, felt, maybe it's through a worship song, overwhelmed with weeping? You're in church and you're trying not to weep because you're embarrassed about it, but you know God is there. Those kind of things. How long did you marvel before something else grabbed your attention? 
These same Israelites that saw God perform those mighty acts over Pharaoh in Egypt, the signs that he did through Moses, um, three days once they get across the Red Sea, three days, and they're already grumbling against God, and they're saying, you can't be trusted. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you let us out here to bury us, that we're going to die in the, in the wilderness? It was, it was that, quick, that quickly after they saw these signs and wonders, the whole Passover thing, the angel of death, all those plagues, all those signs and wonders, we're so quick, ourselves included, we're so quick to forget the awesome power and the holiness of God. And it seems, it seems the reason is that we lack healthy habits, especially the habit of practicing remembrance. It's one of the things I like so much about the Anglican way. Every week, through the Eucharistic prayer, through the liturgy, we remember who God is and what he has done, how this holy God has come into a sinful people and has saved us, who Jesus is. We remember that. We practice it over and over and over again. Um, If without good habits, we just seem to forget. Yesterday, I ran into a a longtime friend and church member um, in the grocery store, and I hadn't seen him in five years. Uh, I can't believe it's been that long, or I guess it's been three. It's been three years. And um, he was, came up to me, very friendly, and I just said, how, how are you doing? How's your family? I haven't seen you in a while. And he said, yeah, you know, when COVID hit, we were watching online for a while, and then we just fell out of the habit. And then, like, work and family obligations crept in, and we had a whole conversation about this. And I, and I concluded it, and I said, so I'll see you tomorrow in church? I'll give you a shout-out. I hope he's listening. I hope you're in here somewhere. I'm not going to say your name, but I'm grateful for the interaction. But he admitted it was, the ha- it was just habit. It's not that he renounced his faith. It's not that he doesn't believe in God anymore. He simply fell out of the habit of worship and remembrance and being here and being reminded and being fed from the table. I don't know when the last time he received communion is. I assumed he was going to a different church because there was a lot of that that happened. And I, I said that, and he goes, no, we just fell out of the habit. Habits can make or break us. Do you know the phrase, stop, look, and listen? You, do you? My, my wife didn't know it. She was like, stop, drop, and roll. I know that one. <laughs> I was like, no, not fire. Think streets. Think railroad crossings. As a little kid, I was taught the habit, when you come to a street, stop, look, listen for cars, and then cross the street. It's, it's a helpful habit to have. Stop, look, and listen. And I'd like to use those three things to go through the rest of this text. Stop, look, and listen. Stop is important because in Deuteronomy, Moses is stopping the people intentionally. God is about to lead them into the promised land. They've been wandering for years in the wilderness, being tested by his holiness, failing, being, you know, repenting, being restored, back and forth, back and forth. And, they find, and Moses himself sinned against God. And the judgment was, you can see it, but you don't get to go into the land. You're going you're gonna to die in the wilderness with this generation. And Moses gets to look from Mount Nebo in, but he doesn't get to go in. So what does this Moses leader do? Well, he, he gives the second law. That's what Deuter- Deuteronomy in Greek means, second law. And basically, he's, te- he's reinterpreting what God gave to him years ago on Mount Sinai, and now he's saying the law again, but he's doing it for a settled people. Instead of being nomadic and wandering in the desert, you're now going to go into Canaan, and you're going to live in towns. You'll be settled. And so things about the law needed to be explained and expanded a little bit further. And so that's basically what he's doing here. This, this, it's a stop at the Jordan River. You don't get to cross over. Stop there. And let's consider how life will be without Moses. And that's a big thing. It was obviously very disconcerting to the people. I mean, we just saw how Moses went up into that scary fire and met with God. 
And God spoke to him, and he didn't die, and he came back down. And so the fact that Moses is no longer going to be with them, um, how will they hear from God? How will God guide them? How do you hear from God? How does God guide you? Very helpful to ask that question. Yes, Joshua will be raised up as the military leader that will do the conquest and push out the inhabitants that God is judging in Canaan and make space for the Israelites, but Joshua was not Moses. They were different in a number of different ways. And Moses was like, unlike anyone they had ever known. I mean, even Numbers 12, 8 says that he was unique in, in, of all the people. He saw the Lord's form, and God spoke to him mouth to mouth, it says in uh, Numbers 12, 8. I mean, when he came down from that mountain, Mount Sinai, he was so full of the glory of God, his face shone, and it scared the Israelites, so he had to wear a veil over his face the rest of his ministry as that glory faded off of him. They almost forgot that he was human. He was so godlike or like an angel in some ways. And the point of this section of Deuteronomy is about how they should get guidance in the new land. In the paragraph right before it, um, he explicitly says how not to get guidance. You are not to do the things that the Canaanites that you're about to displace do. And um, the paragraph right before this says, let me read it to you. It says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That's Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12. And we picked up in the paragraph right after that. I should add to that some more current forms of this that are wrong to get ways to get divine guidance. Avoid things such as horoscopes, Ouija boards, tarot cards, reading the tea leaves, magic eight balls even, any kind of witchcraft all kinds of witchcraft. These things are powerful. They'll give you guidance. There is an energy and power behind it. The problem is it's from evil. You don't want to be led by evil. You need to be led by God only. And so we're stopping here. Stop. Ask yourself, how do I make decisions? Am I seeking God in all things? When I'm going to make a decision, do I ask him first or do I just go it alone? Do I just coast on my, my natural wisdom? Or do I listen to some other kind of guide? How do I listen? Now, this is, a, this is a series, a sermon series on images of the Messiah, and we get one of the best ones right here, one of my favorites. Now, let's look. We've stopped, and we're asking, how do we get guidance? Now, let's look. Let's take a look at um, the provision God does give. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15. I think it's page 161. I forgot to tell you the page number. Somewhere in there, around 161. Anyway, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Now, what's interesting is then after that, in the rest of our text, he gives these guidelines to how do you know if a prophet is a good one or a bad one? Um, if what he says comes true, then you know that you should listen to that prophet. It's like you have to build a track record of, of faithfulness to God, and then the people will start to trust. But it's singular prophet that he's talking about, but clearly he's also referring to many individual prophets. God's God raised up men and some women to speak for him faithfully. There were also false prophets in those days, and they had to test this out. So it's a little confusing here. Um, the last paragraph of Deuteronomy, the end of the book, chapter 34, is obviously written by somebody after Moses dies because it's describing Moses. It's like a biographer. 
And he's writing this, obviously, many years later, and he says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. So God did raise up other prophets, but there were none that were quite like Moses. Moses was so unique. And um, it was a partial fulfillment in some of those other prophets, but it was a complete fulfillment in Christ, which is why this is an image of the Messiah. In fact, in late Jewish years, around the time that intertestamental period, the time when Jesus comes onto the scene and John the Baptist come on the scene, there was a big expectation that this prophet was coming. Um, uh, the, The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says this, quote, an individual interpretation was given to this passage, meaning a singular prophet. It's singular in the grammar, but then there were many other prophets too. A singular interpretation was given to this passage, and the prophet who should come became a figure associated with the Messianic age and sometimes identified with the Messiah himself. So when John the Baptist, kind of the last of the Old Testament-style prophets, shows up on the scene and, does all the, and, and calls for repentance and does what he does, they go and they ask him, are you the prophet? Capital P, meaning are you the one? They thought maybe he was. And then when Jesus does stuff, they assume Jesus is the prophet, which he is. Like when he feeds the 5,000, um, uh, that's in uh, John 6. Um, when he had done that feeding of the 5,000, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. They didn't ask him. They just said, this is obviously the prophet. This is like Moses, who gave the manna in the desert. Here's Jesus feeding 5,000. He's so like Moses, but better. Both the apostle Peter and the martyr Stephen quote Moses about Jesus in Acts chapter three and Acts chapter seven. They quote this text and say, this is the one. This is the prophet Moses talked about, it's Jesus. So if Jesus is the promised prophet, how is he like Moses? Remember, stop and look. We're looking at something, look at this. Both were called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son, my son Israel and my literal son Jesus. Both had to be in Egypt related to political turmoil. Pharaoh was oppressing and Moses had to flee, and then God sent him back to rescue the Israelites. Herod was killing all the babies because he heard the Messiah had come. So, you know, Moses or uh, Mary and Joseph had to take Jesus down into Egypt and hide for a while until Herod dies, and then they could come back. These parallels, there's so many of them. Both had an unusual intimacy with God, different than all the other people. Both stood in the presence of God's holiness even being transfigured and glorified and shown um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the gospel reading this morning. Just like Moses' face shone, Jesus was transfigured and became glowingly bright. Both initiated a new covenant. It was new when Moses initiated his covenant, or God's covenant through him, about how through the law, now it's not God with an individual, but God with a nation. A nation was born. Jesus, as we'll hear in our Eucharistic prayer, said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Both of them initiated a covenant. Both spoke um, the words that God gave to them. They were the mouthpiece of God. Jesus actually said in John 8, John 12, and John 14, I only say what I hear from my Father. So he was speaking the words that God gave him, as was Moses, as a prophet. And they both interceded on behalf of sinful people before God's holiness and before God's fire. Both were resisted by the people in their ministry, and they were frustrated with the people's reluctance. But how is Jesus even better than Moses? Hebrews 3 describes this and says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are this house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That's Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. A servant in a house is important. A son over the house is much more important. Think about an employee versus the inheritor, right? This is the son of God. Jesus is so much more important, and we're looking at at who he is. You know, at one point in Exodus 32, 32, the Israelites, the golden calf thing, they had sinned so badly. Moses, being this intercessor, actually goes up and offers himself as atonement. Can you believe that? This guy loved the people so much, he said, take me, blot me out of your book and let them live. And God says, nope, I'm going to hold each one accountable. But I think the reason is because, nope, you're not a spotless lamb. They need a perfect sacrifice to atone for their sins, which we say, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Jesus, the perfect one, took our sins. He, if you will, went up on a mountain, we call it Mount Calvary, just the hill in Jerusalem, into the fire of God's wrath and took that for us on the cross. Whereas Moses was not permitted to do that, he was willing to, he wanted wanted to, but he wasn't a good enough offering. Jesus is perfect. We needed a perfect spotless lamb. And Jesus is the one who speaks for God, and he takes God's wrath. I mean, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, this, the, the love and the, the goodness coming out of Christ, look at how great he is. Look at how awesome he is. So stop whatever you're doing and just look at Jesus again. Look at how amazing. So stop, lock, look, stop, look, and now listen. Let me quickly listen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, says Moses, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. When Jesus went up on that Mount of Transfiguration and that it was Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah, both who had, had died, their spirit was there somehow. They, they were there present, and they were talking to Jesus about his exodus, and Peter says the foolish thing about making three tabernacles for them, and then a cloud envelops them, and there's a voice. The voice from God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. It's helpful to do a little word study on listen. You know, the Hebrew word shema, hear, O Israel, hear the Lord your God is one, love the Lord your God, it doesn't mean just hear the sound. And the Greek word that the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, as well as the one in Mark 9, our gospel reading, akuo, from which we get acoustics, again, it's not just hearing the sound, it means to hear and heed, to obey. Jesus' great commission is go and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. So we need to listen to what he says. You don't need a new word. You have the word. If you're not sure where to start, just go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a phenomenal teaching. Just read that. And then ask, like, how, what was Jesus like? What did he tell me to do? How am I doing it? And then beg God's spirit to give you the power to do it because we can't do it without his help. Cultivate a prayer life asking him for help. So, Don't forget the moments when God has moved in your life. Try to remember them throughout. It's easy in church, right? We're focused on God. We have all these symbols. We have the encouragement of the community. It's when we go away from this place. It's like the coal in the fire that moves away and gets black and dark and cold. You bring it back near the fire, it gets red hot again, right? We go out from this place, and it's when life rushes in. We forget the fire. We forget that God is holy. We forget that he loves us. We forget the cross. We forget all that, and we just kind of 
become like everybody else. We need help with this. And habits, we need habits of reading the scriptures and reminding ourselves and remembrance. That's why we remember every week. So in closing, Jesus told a parable of two sons in Matthew 21. He said, a father of a vineyard had two sons, and he said to one, go work the vineyard, son. And his son said, no, I won't do it. And then he went off and reconsidered and went into the vineyard and worked. A second son was asked by the father, go work in my vineyard. And he said, sure, dad, I'll do it. And then he just went off and didn't do it. Jesus said, which one did the will of the father? And the answer is obviously the one that did what he was asked. Not just heard it and said, yes, yes, the one that actually did it. Let's try in God's strength to build habits to be those kind of people that do what he says. This prophet has come. It's Jesus, and he has spoken to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is tough. It's tough to uh, acknowledge how holy you are as sinners. We feel that. And so we pray that you would refresh us this morning. Lord, show us habits that need to change. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Remind us of how good you are and how gracious and how loving. Nourish us from your table this morning, Lord, and help us become more like Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.